This is The Weekly. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. If you're fascinated with trains and Amtrak, stay tuned. Our next guest is Stephen Gardner. He is the Senior Executive Vice President, Chief Operating and Commercial Officer for Amtrak, which means what? Hi, Steve. Uh, Well, it means that the business portion of Amtrak, our commercial development, all of our sales and marketing on our operations, uh, reports to me. I'm responsible really for delivering the day-to-day operation of the railroad and helping the company meet our plan every year. Let's begin by going back to 1971. How and why was Amtrak formed? Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, Amtrak really came about as a result of um, serious decline in the railroad industry and particularly in the passenger business that occurred beginning really in the late 50s but throughout the 1960s. And uh, by 1970, it had become really quite clear that both the fundamental uh, business of hauling passengers was was not something the private sector could continue to do, and that uh, changes in the freight markets as well were destabilizing railroads and causing very significant bankruptcy here in the Northeast. Uh, so uh, the freight railroads themselves, the private railroads then, who, who had passenger and freight service, uh, got together and, and came up with an idea uh, led by a few of them uh, to create a new corporation sponsored by the government to take over those passenger responsibilities, free them of the obligation to run passenger trains so they could focus on their freight business. I know one of the biggest challenges you have faced and continue to face is the rail lines that you're operating on. Explain the business model of those lines. Yeah, it's a, it's a really a distinction uh, here in the United States and a few other places around the world from the rest of the, the global situation for rail. Our infrastructure is primarily privately owned in the United States for rail, uh, primarily owned by, by big companies who uh, have um, the business of transporting freight. Amtrak, uh, we ended up taking over a piece of that network in 1976 with the Northeast Corridor, um, but primarily rely on these private railroads who own their infrastructure as our hosts. And we have access to their infrastructure, and that access was granted as part of the formation of Amtrak. So in exchange for us taking over the obligation to operate trains, we received access to, to that infrastructure on an incremental basis. Um, but it's a challenge because the those railroads have their own businesses, have their own business demands, and their own own operating philosophies, and we are a tenant, in essence, on that infrastructure. And um, we are working hard to try and improve our performance on, on, those, on those lines. Elsewhere in the world, the public usually owns this infrastructure, and it's managed for the benefit of both passenger and freight. And depending on the country, there's more emphasis on one or the other or both. Um, but here we have a system which relies on many different owners of infrastructure all collaborating together to deliver a network. But is that sustainable? Would you want to change that model? Well, look, I, I think we're, um, you know, the, the model we have is, is is likely what we will have. I think what we're uh, focused on is trying to get better performance out of that model. Uh, in some instances, Amtrak may be able to acquire additional infrastructure, build new infrastructure, but primarily we have this big network that exists, and, and Amtrak 
I think, can make good use of it in partnership with the freight railroads. But right now, some of the things in law that give us that access and also help get us preference over freight transportation so that our trains can stay on time, um, they don't work well. They aren't working well. They're uh, unenforced in some instances, and we're not seeing the results that we need to see, primarily the on-time performance that we owe all of our passengers. Additionally, we see huge opportunities for growth around the country. Markets that we could serve and provide real value to the traveling public, but our ability to do that in a way that is uh, reasonable and uh, expedited with our host railroads, where we have to work with them on being able to access their tracks, is, um, is, is a challenge. We just aren't seeing uh, the kind of evolution of our network under this model. So we're looking for help from Congress and partnership with these freight railroads to try and figure out a way for us both to do more. Because we're invested, of course, in the freight railroads doing well. Uh, We want them to have successful business and strong infrastructure, but we need to be able to use it to serve the public. I want to come back to those points, remind our listeners that we're talking with Stephen Gardner of Amtrak. Who are your competitors? Who's the biggest competition? And I realize it's different perhaps in the Northeast than it is long-range travel from New York to California or from D.C. to Orlando, Florida. But but who are you competing against? Yeah, no, great question. We have, as you say, it depends on the market. But, I mean, first and foremost, the car is always our number one competitor in, every, in sort of almost every instance, right? We we see, you know, huge numbers of auto trips in, in really every market. And that's the thing that we – where we think we can provide sort of the most value is creating an alternative to driving in a lot of markets. And our focus is on trying to create a reliable trip time convenient service in markets where there is a lot of auto traffic. And that auto traffic is driving up congestion. I mean, more than 40 percent of today's urban – Interstate corridors are congested. That congestion is, I think, going to triple by 2040, according to Federal Highway estimates. We, we, We see huge amounts of constraint and essentially sort of clogging of our mobility under the current model. And and we think passenger rail can do a lot more. So we're really focused on how we help to create an alternative to driving. Having said that, obviously, in certain markets, Air is a competitor um, in uh, some of our shorter distance markets. In the longer distance markets, frankly, you know, people are not traveling a thousand miles or two thousand miles by train because there isn't air service. There's obviously air service, and the air service is typically much, actually, more affordable in some cases than taking the train. They're usually taking those longer trips for the experience. Um, Most of our long-distance trains actually are serving shorter distances along the route. So very few people take a train from, say, Chicago to Seattle. Most folks are taking a trip along that route, but for a shorter uh, portion of the trip, like let's say the Twin Cities to Chicago, for instance. Uh, And in those smaller markets, again, our biggest competitor is is the car. Uh, In some markets, we have bus competition. uh, And in places like the Northeast, we have some air competition, which is sort of head-to-head. And and clearly, that's been a focus of our our service in the Northeast Corridor, where we've essentially inverted the air-rail market share. We used to have a relatively small portion. Now we have roughly 75% of the travel between Washington and New York compared to the airlines. 
and a majority in, in, in New York to Boston, showing that we can create good value and, and, a, and a, a service that is, in fact, the preference of consumers when we have a reliable product that's trip time competitive and that's frequent. We've got enough trains every day traveling at the right times. Another history question. Acela, how did that come about? And what's the name mean, by the way? <laughs> yeah. I mean, Acela is um, – so the the origins of, of Acela, you know, start – a couple of decades beforehand, I mean, as much much in our business takes a long time to develop and germinate, and because uh, relies on big access or big infrastructure elements, and sometimes access to host railroads and fleet can take many years to come to fruition. The, the Acela program was uh, an example of that, but the, the origins of the program really begin actually with a, a, a sort of more fundamental goal, which was electrifying the north end of the Northeast Corridor. So. Uh, prior to the mid-90s, um, the electrification of the Northeast Corridor ended at New Haven in Connecticut. And it required us to change locomotives and proceed with diesel trains north from New Haven to Boston. Uh, and uh, there was an effort in the 90s um, uh, led in, in, in large part by Senator Frank Lautenberg from New Jersey uh, to help electrify the northern end of this corridor. And that created the opportunity to run high-speed electric service between Washington, New York, and Boston. And as part of that, the Acela program was designed to take take advantage of this new infrastructure capacity, the ability to operate at higher speeds and reduce trip time because you didn't have to change the locomotive anymore at New Haven. You could run seamlessly uh, across across the North End. Uh, and Acela was a, you know, it's a brand name. It's a name designed to convey um, acceleration and the feeling of uh, momentum uh, and excellence. And it was a huge success for us. It was really the first sort of new product we uh, we were able to launch. Most of our um, history at the company has been sort of preserving and trying to modernize the assets we inherited when we were created, bringing uh, all that legacy forward and trying to um, uh, make it relevant and um, expand from from that base. But Acela was really a, a new start for us. It took took off where the Metroliner service, which had predated it, uh, had left, but really introduced a, a, a much bigger uh, boost for the company in terms of ridership and revenue, uh, and is the path we tr- continue to, to take as we look to a new fleet of Acela and expanding that service in the Northeast. Is it safe to say it is your number one moneymaker? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, it is. And um, the Northeast Corridor itself is our most successful uh, operation financially. But I, I always point out that that success is predicated on very significant investments from the federal government in our infrastructure and from our other users. The Northeast Corridor is a 2,200 train a day uh, network of um, 12 different railroads, freight, passenger, commuter, all working together, all investing in a set of common assets. Some are owned by Amtrak, some are owned by the states. And uh, what makes our operational success possible is a big investment in in infrastructure that comes courtesy of the federal government, but also is what we self-generate by, by having a, a, a successful operation. So all those dollars that we're looking to capture from tickets, that, that those funds cover the cost of the operation, but then become capital investments that go into this infrastructure, which 
is uh, actually, even though it does remarkable things for us every day, is suffering from decades of underinvestment. And we have billions of dollars of, of uh, projects that need to be done to continue the reliability we have achieved and develop more capacity to the future. I was in New York taking the Amtrak up and back over the Thanksgiving holiday, and I overheard a couple talking about Penn Station. Yeah. They had traveled around the world, and they thought that, in their words, overhearing their conversation, it's disgusting. It needs to be revamped, updated. Yeah. What role does Amtrak play? And if you could change Penn Station, improve it, what would be on your wish list? Yeah, um, you know, it's a, it's an understandable sentiment. You go travel across the globe and in big principal cities you find, you know, sort of either cathedrals to sort of the past glories of rail transportation or, um, you know, new – uh, modern architecture pieces, which really uh, you know speak for the city or the country that they represent, like Union and, Station here, yeah, in like DC. Union Station, exactly, right? Or 30th Street in Philadelphia or Chicago Union Station. These are you know fantastic buildings, and unfortunately, in New York, as many of your listeners probably know, we we lost that grand icon that we had um, long before Amtrak was in existence, um, and we inherited sort of the basement, basically, of Madison Square Garden. Uh, and there's long been efforts to try to figure out how to refashion that experience in a way that would meet uh, the the basic needs of our customers. And the, the facility is, you know, it's the busiest transportation facility in North America. It's dominated by the commuter use. Uh, the Long Island Railroad and the New Jersey Transit passengers use the building. It dwarf Amtrak's relatively small presence in terms of passengers. Um, but all f- three railroads have produced a level of traffic far beyond what the building was built for. So there, I, I can tell you, though, that there's a lot of work afoot to try and um, advance uh, improvements in our in what's you know certainly Amtrak's most important city in terms of number of passengers. Um, first is the opening of the Moynihan Train Hall. So this is a, a project led by the state of New York um, in partnership with Amtrak and, and Long Island Railroad and, and others to reactivate uh, the Farley Post Office, which is across the street from Penn Station, as a new headhouse for passengers. This building was built on top of the same tracks and platforms that exist today, originally to convey mail down to uh, the track level because trains carried mail. And um, we are uh, soon, uh, you know, in the next year or so, uh, going to be moving into a brand new glorious uh, passenger space for passengers to wait, to to board, and to to, to uh, uh, engage in ticketing. You know, use all this sort of amenities in the kind of space that I think people would expect in in a city like New York, a global leader. Um, so that's going to be a huge addition uh, to the um, whole facility. At the same time. There's a series of smaller but important improvements happening at Penn Station. The state of New York and Long Island Railroad and the Metro North, or excuse me, uh, the uh, MTA are improving what's known as the 33rd Street Corridor, which is the main concourse level for the Long Island Railroad. As we move to Moynihan uh, for our passenger activities, we uh, and New Jersey Transit and Long Island Railroad will be able to redevelop the existing concourse, which today we occupy. And part of this is that challenge. The the place is so busy and it's so essential to the economy and functionality of the city. 
it's really hard to take any of these big pieces sort of out of service for a while to repair them and modernize them. You really have to be cognizant of the the impact. So Moynihan basically gives us swing space. It allows us to move our operations to the west a block, and that opens up opportunities to help redevelop um, the, the existing station and make incremental improvements. You know, it's never going to be the Penn Station that was once there. That, unfortunately, is lost. But we can provide a much higher level of quality uh, and a much better experience at today's Penn Station. Moynihan will, I think, meet people's expectations. It's sort of the same size as Grand Central, basically, in terms of its um, volume and its beautiful, incredible facility. So I think people will be really um, impressed and wowed by by that, by that station, and Amtrak's really excited to be um, to be able to offer our passengers that experience—a new lounge, and a whole whole new environment for boarding. You'll still go down to the same tracks and platforms, and long term, that's the other part of this equation. People rightfully focus on the passenger experience, but the more fundamental issue we have at Penn Station is we're out of tracks and platforms to grow. We can't really add more service, any of the three railroads today. We need to expand. We have some programs to do, uh, look to do that over, over the future. But our first focus is on getting uh, into Moynihan Train Hall and, um, and starting basically this process of improvement. What about competition? Is it competition from Brightline in Florida, Caltrain, or other operations in individual states or regions? Yeah. So, um, you know, I I don't really view those as competition per se. I mean, I'm I think Amtrak's very supportive of efforts to develop modern passenger rail service in the United States in sort of all of its forms. So um, we are, uh, you know, we're, we're anxiously sort of watching how things develop for Texas Central and Texas. We obviously uh, stay uh, connected and watch California high-speed rail. Uh, we're uh, keeping keeping a close eye on how things progress for Virgin Trains and in Florida. Um, all these developments from our view are are helpful because they to the extent that they produce a viable product and a modern safe product um, they help to create awareness about our mode of transport and the value it can play and the way that it can work in our environment here in the united states we we think there's much more opportunity uh, today than ever before. We think the future of rail is better for the next 50 years than it has been for the past 50 years for a whole number of reasons. And um, we're glad to see folks who share that view and are trying to uh, introduce service and and make infrastructure investments. Um, you know, the specific markets and the, the, the challenges that each face, I mean, are, are varied, but um, we uh, generally are glad to see people talking about how rail can do more. Uh, we at Amtrak think we've um, really uh, sort of proven our ability to manage our system and 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 to uh, perform. But um, you know we don't see the presence of other operators as as taking away from our success. We we think there's room for uh, for for many folks to try and be in this market to help grow rail. So bottom line, what would true high-speed rail look like between Washington, D.C., New York, and Boston? Well, it's a good question. We spent some time looking at that in the early part of this decade um, in, advan- in advance of a study that was done by the Department of Transportation's Federal uh, Rail Administration. Um, and 
you know, I think one thing that maybe is just not kind of totally understood in the U.S., people ask this question all the time, why can't we have high-speed rail, right? And, and of course, we can. The, the technology and the system is is a mature technology. I mean, the, the Japanese developed Shinkansen in 1965, their, their bullet train. It's, it's a global standard at this point, uh, high speed, and we know how, uh, how it works. It's not a mystery. It's not something that, that the United States needs to sort of develop anew. What it takes is dedicated infrastructure and dedicated right-of-way. That's the key, is you have to build purpose-build for high-speed rail. You need to have relatively straight track, and um, it needs to be dedicated primarily for the purpose of high speed. And so it's really a question of investment. Um, and it's something that Amtrak has advocated. Um, we think there is absolutely a role for true high speed in a number of markets in the U.S. We don't think it has to all be true high speed. We think there are lots of ways that sort of just conventional solid, reliable intercity service can work. I mean, if you look at our service between San Diego and L.A. and um, uh, uh, Santa Barbara and, and San Luis Obispo in California, where we are operating 13 round trips, I mean, we're, we're providing great service today. Our Hiawatha service between Chicago and Milwaukee, I mean, it's the way to go between those two cities. And um, and, and we're doing that today without going 200 miles an hour. Um, would it be even better if we could go 200 miles an hour? Sure, but there's a, a real cost to do that. On the other hand, there are places like the Northeast where eventually I see that we're out of track capacity. We're going to need to build additional infrastructure, and that's when we really should look long and hard about investing in the kind of capacity that exists around the world of 200-mile-an-hour service and and a very high level of frequency that's very reliable, 10 trains an hour, You know that kind of capacity which can move hundreds of thousands of people um, and deliver the kind of trip times that would change sort of the nature of geography. I mean, uh, we think it's easily achievable uh, with the right money and time, of course, but to have 90-minute trip times between Washington and New York and New York and Boston. Uh, So 38 minutes, 48 minutes between Philadelphia and New York, for instance. Those are the kind of travel times that really shrink geography. They create new markets, new la- sort of new labor pools, they, they, they integrate uh, in a way that I think produces real economic benefit and real cultural benefit. Um, and when I look out to the future and I look at today's highway infrastructure and I look at today's aviation infrastructure, I just see no way that those modes are going to be able to carry the load uh, reliably into the future. We've added 120 million people since Amtrak was formed. We're on track to add another 100 million between now and 2050 across the United States. And we've built very little new capacity. And uh, when you think about the impact on the environment, uh, you think about urbanization and growth in our cities, uh, I see rail as absolutely the sort of best choice to introduce capacity efficiently, sustainably, and help us meet the needs of a growing America. So to that point, as you look at the bullet train you mentioned in Japan, you travel across Europe and you see rail service in Switzerland, you can set your watch on departures and arrivals. What are the lessons that you can take from other countries? Uh, we, um, we, we've 
we spend a lot of time trying to learn what we can from uh, the global experience. Again, we're we're a small piece of a huge industry uh, here in in uh, around the globe, and, and and Amtrak's just a relatively small player in that large market. Um, there are a couple of key lessons I would say. One, it takes a transportation policy that recognizes the role that rail can play. Right, I think you have to build a transport policy to um, bring rail to the table and provide the level of investment over time and the level of modal integration that's necessary to support rail. So rail in in other countries, it isn't sort of its own – I mean it's its own mode and it's usually run by a central uh, national railway. Um, but it, it relies – it works – because it is so well integrated into public transport systems, into the aviation network, into all of the multimodal pieces of, uh, of, of transportation. And so you have to have a policy that supports that, that helps achieve that in order to have rail sort of play as optimal role. And then you need clearly dedicated long-term resources. This is not a it's not a cheap mode. It's not a mode that you, you, you sort of get into because it's, it's low cost, low entry, low barrier. It, it, ta- it takes quite a lot of money to build the right infrastructure, but that infrastructure is incredibly productive when you build it. You build it in the right place, it can transform uh, geography. And um, so where we see rail as a big success, we see the right policy supporting rail's role in in transportation. We see dedicated resources uh, over a long period of time, not on a sort of annual basis, but a a commitment, in fact, to developing a network. Um, We see um, strong technology and, and, and suppliers. This is more than just the railway itself, but it's the whole host of technology and, and, and vendors that, that, make the system work uh, and good technical know-how. And fundamentally, we see safe systems, uh, systems that are designed to ensure the safety and reliability of, uh, of their travelers and a focus on, on punctuality and capacity, having enough trains at the right time and having those trains deliver uh, on time. As you said, the Swiss are you know, phenomenal at this. Um, they have a massive network, incredible amount of trains, and they run very punctually. The way they do that is by having excellent infrastructure that's very well cared for. They're not relying on, you know, bridges or tunnels that are 150 years old that are, you know, sort of in the waning days of their capacity. Um, and they have um, very well-maintained uh, fleet, rolling stock, you know, passenger cars, locomotives. And, um, and then it's part of the national priority. And um, people respect the railway. They expect it to work well. And uh, it does. Two quick points and then a final question. First, I read that Amtrak now has a train from D.C. directly to New York nonstop. Yeah. 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 The the new uh, sell and nonstop service, we've just introduced it here a few months ago. And it's part of our kind of testing process as we look to introduce our new Acela train sets here uh, starting in uh, 2021. We're, we're going to increase the number of trains we have to 28 trains, up from 20 today. And that's going to give us the opportunity to 
experiment with new types of service, uh, new service models. It also allows us to rethink a little bit what our Northeast regional product does today and how we serve the different markets. I mean, we're blessed with incredible, you know, 50 million people in this in this Northeast environment, all uh, most of whom live very close to this this railway spine that that, that connects these sort of pearl sort of string of pearl cities uh, up the coast and um, what what we uh, will be working on is how to try and serve all the different markets that exist the Obviously, the big markets are well-known, Washington, New York, for instance, New York, Boston. We want to be able to serve those well, as well as we can. At the same time, there are all these intermediate markets where there's lots of opportunity, I think, for continued growth, where folks are a little bit too far outside of a major city. They don't want to drive to the city and get on a train to go a place that they could just drive to, you know, sort of in total, um, places like Aberdeen or Newark, Delaware, or... um, uh, you know, sort of locations that are even even smaller, but but still have opportunities to develop, like Perryville or something. So these are places where we uh, ultimately want to be able to offer more service. The way to do that is to be able to segment some of our our service between the big cities onto uh, express or nonstop services, and that gives us opportunities to stop more places with other trains. So the Acela nonstop's been been a great success, uh, sort of test so far. We are, I think, growing the overall market. People like the service. Um, we, we aren't able to do full round trips in the morning and afternoon yet. We only have a, have a morning departure from New York and an afternoon departure from Washington because of the limitations on equipment. But we are, um, I think, feeling good about the idea of uh, continuing that service. And that frees up capacity on today's trains for intermediate markets. So Baltimore to Newark or Washington to Philadelphia. Today, those seats are in type competition for folks going between Washington and New York. And when we take all the folks who are going between Washington and New York and put them on the nonstop, then we open up more seats for folks on those intermediate journeys. And hopefully we get to grow the whole business. Everyone gets more opportunity to take the trains. And um, we get more utilization, which is great. And Stephen Gardner, the other headline changes in your food service on some routes yeah, so this, this has gotten some attention. We have been um, continually looking to evolve our food service uh, across all of our uh, services, but uh, but particularly in our long distance service. We have fifteen long distance routes that span the span the nation, connecting our major regions. And uh, we've recently, after a, a pilot for a while with two routes, expanded to the East Coast trains. These are one night overnight trips. Um, that uh, um, you know primarily have a few meal periods. We have some trains that are two day trains and have you know a lot of time. People are on board for those taking the whole trip. Uh, but we've been experimenting with uh, new ways of offering that service. Uh, people's tastes and their expectations are changing, and we have you know the millennials are now the majority of the you know, the, the largest uh, generational population in the U.S. and uh, they are. Um, you know, soon to be our uh, the majority of travel consumers and and a big business for us. And we're trying to think about how to uh, cater to their needs while still uh, providing the service that you know folks who have uh, long been passengers or have a connection to sort of the railroading of, of the 20th century uh, that they still enjoy. So we have modified some of our approach here on these uh, trains. We're offering a more sort of flexible and contemporary 
situation where you can get your food brought to you in your room or you can eat together in the dining car. The communal dining car experience, which is, you know, over 100 years old, is something that some people like a lot. But, you know, in the era of people wanting to be on their phones all the time and doing work and traveling in a sort of a different kind of way, uh, we, we're trying to create a more flexible environment and also turn our diners into a place that is more communal overall. Historically, those those spaces have only been used during meal periods and then closed to passengers in the in in, in the uh, uh, intervening times. We want to open that that space up as a lounge for our sleeping car passengers. Have them be able to ex- in, use the space, enjoy the room, get the vistas from the train. That's obviously a big part of why people take our our uh, our trains and um, be able to eat in a more flexible way, sort of when they want to, where they want to, how they want to. And we're trying to adapt the cuisine to that and, and overall increase the product quality of the food itself, but deliver it in a new way. So in our final minute, you talked about long-term investments and changes, but let's talk short-term and complete this sentence. Amtrak in the next 10 to 15 years will look like what? Amtrak will, I think, grow considerably, and I think it will grow as a network into the kind of places that look today maybe not quite as substantial as the Northeast in terms of population, but in 10 years will. If you look at the Southeast, you look at the Mountain West, you look at Texas, you look at Florida, these are places that are growing at astronomical levels. They're adding lots of population and in the process creating a lot of congestion, a lot of density. And Amtrak's goal, I think, and mission is to provide relevant, valuable service across the nation, in all the markets we can, where we can make a difference and provide a meaningful level of transportation. Today, many of those markets we serve with one train a day. Maybe it shows up in the middle of the night. Maybe it shows up at you know a convenient time for you. Maybe it's substantially late because it's been on a host freight railroad and the timekeeping's not been great. Uh, we, we, we are, we're not offering a lot of these communities a lot of great service. Uh, we just don't have a big enough presence. And as a result, we're not able to really make a difference in terms of transportation. And I think Amtrak's got a great success on its hands in a number of corridors today and, and certainly in the Northeast Corridor. And I think that sort of serves as a prototype of what we can do in communities across the country. Meanwhile, we still want to um, maintain the level of service we have uh, throughout the country, but evolve that service so that, it, again, it is more valuable and provides more focus. So I think you'll see in 10 to 15 years a company that is focused on growth, that's focused on creating more trips, and that is providing more utility and value for the federal investment we receive um, in communities across the country. Stephen Gardner, a native of Arlington, Virginia, Senior Executive Vice President, Chief Operating and a Commercial Officer for Amtrak. Thanks very much for stopping by. We enjoyed the conversation. Steve, thank you. It was great. And a reminder, this podcast is available on the free C-SPAN Radio app or wherever you download your favorite podcast, also on the web at cspan.org. We thank you for listening. 